Welcome to Neurology Journal Club, Emerging Treatments for Alzheimer's Disease. The Journal Club podcasts are developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and are part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Biogen MA. In this episode, Raymond Scott Turner and Bradford Dickerson discuss the paper from Martin Tolar and colleagues titled Aducanumab, Gantanarumac, BAN2401 and ALZ801, the first wave of amyloid-targeting drugs for Alzheimer's disease with potential for near-term approval. This paper was published in Alzheimer's Research and Therapy. Is amyloid the right target? Will any of these therapies, if they win approval, advance the treatment of Alzheimer's disease? Drs. Turner and Dickerson explore these and other questions. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at journalclubpodcast.com forward slash AD2. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Turner is a professor of neurology and director of the Memory Disorders Program at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Dr. Dickerson is an associate professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School and director of the Frontotemporal Disorders Unit at Massachusetts General Hospital in Charleston. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Let's join our discussion. Dr. Turner and Dr. Dickerson, thank you for joining me again. Um, we previously discussed the exciting work being done in biomarkers for Alzheimer's disease, uh, which have the potential for helping with earlier diagnosis and as well as targets for drug development. In this podcast, we're going to focus on therapeutics in a paper from Martin Toller and colleagues that takes a look at aducanumab, gatanarumab, BAN2401, ALTS801. Um, all of these are anti-amyloid agents. Um, in our last podcast, Dr. Turner, you mentioned that currently biomarkers are divided into what's called the A, T, and N categories by the NIA Alzheimer's Association Research Framework and how these relate to Alzheimer's disease pathology. Can you recap that for us here? As I mentioned in the last uh, podcast that we really haven't made uh, much headway in new therapies for Alzheimer's disease. Our last drug was approved almost 20 years ago, but we've made tremendous progress in development of new biomarkers to try to help us understand the disease process. And we've developed this framework to organize these biomarkers, which is the ATN framework. A stands for amyloid, which is measured by spinal fluid A-beta-42, A-beta-40, or their ratio. And now uh, newer biomarkers are plasma A-beta levels. T stands for tau or tangles, and which uh, is detected by tau PET scans or CSF phosphotau, particularly tau 181 and tau 217. And now again, more recently, plasma tau biomarkers uh, in addition to the spinal fluid. And N stands for neurodegeneration, uh, which is measured by MRI atrophy, glucose, hypometabolism on PET scanning, CSF tau, not phosphotau, but CSF tau, and neurofilament light, and now in addition, plasma tau and NFL and other measures. So these biomarkers have been helpful in diagnosis, in prognosis. We also use them in our clinical trials to test efficacy of new drugs, new therapeutics. And they've also sort of reorganized our thinking about Alzheimer's disease because the biomarkers be become abnormal 10 to 20 years before there's any cognitive decline. So they're helping us to identify individuals at high risk, older individuals at high risk that we can enroll in prevention trials. 
So prevention trials is one of the, the new uh, areas that we've developed only in the last few years that's been enabled by these biomarkers. Great. Uh, Dr. Dickerson, can you elaborate a little bit more on the pathogenesis of Alzheimer's disease and how biomarkers may play a role, either in diagnosis or um, drug development? Sure. Um, I think that when we see patients with dementia, we often think about what is their clinical syndrome of dementia. So dementia means they've lost their independent ability to do something that they used to do before. Maybe it's work, maybe it's run a household uh, or various things like that. And if their syndrome, if the way their symptoms are collected basically shows a gradually progressive loss of memory and gradually progressive difficulty with organization and planning and decision-making uh, in the absence of other medical conditions, um, such as stroke risk factors, we often may think this person likely has dementia due to Alzheimer's disease, but that's a clinical hypothesis. And I think what we have been discussing is the idea that there are an increasing number of tests that can tell us whether a person's dementia, even if it looks typical of a patient with Alzheimer's disease in the brain, actually has Alzheimer's disease pathophysiology in the brain. And the two key hallmarks of that that we typically think of are amyloid plaques and tau neurofibrillary tangles, uh, in addition to the neurodegeneration that Dr. Turner just talked about. And so I think that we are increasingly able to measure biomarkers of amyloid, which we think probably is the first step in the process and may actually begin to form as plaques 15 or more years prior to the development of symptoms. And then tau tangles, uh, which probably develop early in the, the preclinical phase, but after amyloid. And as the tau tangles build up and start to spread and cause brain cells not to function properly and neurodegeneration to develop, that's when people start to develop symptoms. And so um, I think as we walk our way backwards through this, if we think about the future when a patient may be coming in to see us in clinic with symptoms of cognitive impairment, and maybe they don't yet have dementia, maybe they are still at the mild cognitive impairment stage where they're still largely independent in their daily activities, we would like to ideally jump right on that as quickly as possible and figure out if it is likely due to Alzheimer's disease. And if it is, maybe we'll be at a stage where we can start to institute disease-modifying therapies once those show efficacy. Dr. Turner, anything to add? Um, well, uh, traditionally, we used to have only clinical and cognitive measures uh, to, for diagnosis and clinical and cognitive measures for outcomes for clinical trials. These, uh, all these new molecular biomarkers and imaging biomarkers are really helping us make more accurate diagnoses. So I think, uh, and, and also is helping us to figure out if we're actually hitting the target with a new therapeutic. So the goal ultimately of a lot of these biomarker development is to develop these new therapies, and I think they will certainly help us uh, get us there in that direction. So let's turn to the paper from uh, Toller and, and colleagues, um, and three of the agents that they're talking about are injectable antibodies, the aducanumab, gantanerumab, and BAN2401. Um, ALTS801 is a small molecular um, oral agent, or small molecule oral agent, sorry. Can you both talk about each of these classes of agents, uh, their mechanisms of action, and possibly uh, the advantages and disadvantages of each? Uh, Dr. Dickerson? Sure. I, I think that there are a host of different monoclonal antibodies that are 
aimed at amyloid. There are a growing number of monoclonal antibodies that are now aimed at tau. So I think we'll see a diversification of this type of effort. But I think the anti-amyloid monoclonal antibodies are farther along in the phases of clinical trial development. And I think we're still not yet at a point where we can really say which flavor of those anti-amyloid antibodies are going to be likely to be most efficacious. I think there's a lot of preclinical laboratory ideas about whether we should be targeting the so-called oligomers, which are basically small peptides that are beginning to aggregate but are still soluble forms of amyloid versus plaques that have actually been already deposited as insoluble amyloid plaques in brain tissue. And so different antibodies target different forms of pathological amyloid as it goes from this soluble stage to an insoluble stage and is deposited. And there's a lot of rationale for each of these being a reasonable mechanism of action. Um, but we don't yet know if one uh, or other of those is going to be ultimately more clinically efficacious. And, and if it is, when in the course of Alzheimer's disease, that would be the case. So I think that's part of what many of us are excited to learn from these trials is do the anti-amyloid antibodies with different mechanisms of action show different types of either biomarker readouts or possibly clinical readouts that would help us have a better rationale for arguing for or against one of these types of antibodies that are targeting different phases of amyloid plaque development. Mm -hmm. Dr. Turner? Uh, yeah, I think we can sort of sense some sort of momentum towards uh, finding more uh, effective anti-amyloid strategies. Uh, the antibodies differ in epitope, affinity, frequency, route of administration, uh, whether they're entirely human or human mouse uh, chimera in sequence. They all have very promising and exciting phase two data. Uh, some um, show some clinical benefits and some do not. Uh, aducanumab and gantanarumab target uh, the oligomers, while Bantu-401 targets protofibrils. We don't really know which one may be more effective. Uh, some people say one form is more toxic than another, or one may be more effective than another. We just don't know yet until the phase three trials are done. Uh, aducanumab is the closest towards possible FDA approval. It's under review now. There's supposed to be a decision by the 7th of June. Uh, Gantanarumab and lecanumab are now in phase three clinical trials. There's another antibody that's not mentioned in this particular paper. It's donanumab, which is another anti-amyloid uh, monoclonal, which is very effective, so similar to the other antibodies, in removing amyloid from the brain. But whether these, you know, translating this to clinical benefits has been a a harder uh, outcome to realize. And I think it's just the question of finding the right dose for the right duration and the right patient population. So I think there's a palpable sense of momentum of getting closer to effective anti-amyloid strategies. And what are the key takeaways from this study? Does it look like we're on the right track with these anti-amyloid agents, Dr. Turner? Um, one of the um, major side effects of these antibodies is something called ARIA, or amyloid-related imaging abnormality. And I think this is probably a dose-limiting uh, side effect. Uh, it's mostly asymptomatic, but sometimes it can cause symptoms, and including headache and worsening of confusion. Most of it is detectable by MRI scan and um, resolves over time. It may require either temporary or permanent suspension of the, uh, of the drug treatment. 
So I think this is one of the major drawbacks of the anti-amyloid antibody approaches. And this is one of the advantages of the small molecule. So ALS-801 is a small molecule. It's a prodrug of tramiprosate, which is a, an inhibitor of A-beta aggregation and doesn't have this ARIA side effect. Um, unfortunately, a phase three trial of this drug was not effective, but when they did a, a post hoc subgroup analysis, it did show a clinical benefit in individuals who are APOE4 homozygous. So this is only about 1% to 2% of the U.S. population. But in the APOE4 homozygous, this small uh, molecule drug, ALS-801, seemed to be effective. And so now there's a trial enrolling only APOE4 homozygous to really test uh, this uh, small compound further. That's interesting. Dr. Dickerson, anything to add on, on the takeaways? I mean, how close do you think that these drugs may to at least be a target for some patients? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that they are either in or are entering phase three clinical trials. And so that's where we want to be gathering as many, as people like to say, shots on goal as possible with the idea that the more drugs that we are able to bring through phase three clinical trials, the more we're going to have a chance of identifying one that is both safe and effective, and the more that we're going to learn from the ones that don't work in terms of why a drug failed uh, to achieve its um, endpoints. I think one of the challenges is that we have seen at least some evidence for the idea that uh, amyloid plaques can be reduced substantially in the brain, but people don't necessarily have slowing of disease progression, uh, at least over the interval of the trial. And so I think the question is, did we not follow them long enough? Did we give them the treatment at uh, a stage of their illness that was past a point where this type of treatment would be likely to help? Uh, and I think that's where some of the secondary biomarkers can help us understand more about whether it looked like, for example, uh, neurodegeneration, which is often measured, as was mentioned by Dr. Turner, by atrophy, particularly in clinical trials, was that slowed? Um, so I think when the trials go back and look at those atrophy measures, like they did in the subgroup of E4 homozygotes that were treated with ALS-801, there's at least a hint that maybe the um, shrinkage of the brain was slowed down. And I think at least in some settings that can be suggestive of a beneficial effect. I think in other settings where you're removing amyloid, there are questions about fluid shifts and so forth that make that a little more complicated. But um, I think we need to be looking at these subgroups. We need to be looking at these other uh, biomarkers in the context of even failed clinical trials so that we can learn how to better target these new treatments to the patient populations that are most likely to benefit. I, I would just add that there's uh, evidence um, from these trials, there's evidence for the amyloid hypothesis and evidence against the amyloid hypothesis. And the evidence against is that these antibodies seem to be very effective in removing amyloid from the brain as detected by amyloid PET scans. And yet, and yet the patients are still going down, downhill cognitively. They're just not uh, going downhill as quickly as the placebo group. So clearly just removing amyloid may not be enough. Uh, and the, there's something else that's driving the cognitive decline uh, in these patients after the amyloid is removed. But there's also evidence in favor of the amyloid hypothesis in that if we remove the amyloid, we're also seeing beneficial effects in downstream targets like uh, the tau, the T uh, biomarkers, the tau PET scan, the tau phosphotau in spinal fluid, and also some of the end biomarkers such as the atrophy and the glucose PET scan changes. So there's some evidence 
that the amyloid hypothesis is correct because the downstream biomarkers are also showing benefits, but there's also evidence against the amyloid hypothesis. So again, this, you know, we just have to wait until the phase, phase three trials are completed to get more evidence. Right. So uh, two things that, that I'm hearing here is one, these drugs have not been studied long-term, so we don't really know what's happening long-term. And then the other is, is it possible that on the horizon we're going to find that looking at more than one biomarker and targeting more than one biomarker, say with another therapeutic, that a combination therapy you know, might be something down the road? Dr. Turner? I think we probably will end up with a combination therapy. You know, we're sort of doing that now when we give memantine in addition to a cholinesterase inhibitor of the drugs that are already approved. So I think eventually we will, we will need a cocktail uh, strategy. And even if they don't work for treatment, they may work for prevention. I think uh, uh, it may be like the statin model where we give a drug to lower cholesterol for 10, 20 years to decrease the incidence of uh, heart attack and stroke. And so just a, a small effect over a long time may be um, successful in the anti-amyloid approach. But again, the prevention trials will take even longer to complete. Dr. Dickerson? Yeah, I, I like to imagine that just as is, is the case for cardiovascular disease and stroke, if someone has a small heart attack or a small stroke, that tissue, whether it's heart tissue or brain tissue, is damaged, and you're not likely going to recover that tissue. But if you can then institute a more aggressive therapy for the underlying cause of why that tissue damage occurred, Maybe you can delay the time before more tissue damage occurs. And I think we'll be thinking about Alzheimer's disease and related conditions very much like that as we move forward. And it will probably be the case that for different patients at different stages of their illness, they'll need an anti-amyloid therapy. They may need an anti-tau therapy. They may need some kind of neuroprotective or inflammation reducing therapy. And so I think it will be a, a matter of cocktails of drugs, uh, and it will be important to be able to monitor whether those drugs are doing what we think they're doing uh, to the mechanism that they're targeting, in addition to hopefully making a difference in people's symptoms and disease progression. Um, are there any other therapeutics on the horizon that clinicians should have on their radar, be watching for some clinical trials coming down the pike? Uh, Dr. Dickerson? Well, I think that we often talk so much these days about disease-modifying therapies targeting amyloid and tau and other uh, elements of the pathophysiology of the disease, but I think we often don't speak enough about treatments for symptoms, and in particular, that includes um, mood and behavioral symptoms. I think that the uh, major source of disability in many patients' uh, journeys with their illness is a mood disorder in addition to their cognitive impairment or psychosis in addition to their cognitive impairment or agitation. Uh, and that's often what leads families to have to um, institutionalize their loved ones um, before they would need to if it weren't for the behavioral symptoms. So I always encourage our pharmaceutical company colleagues to not forget about the symptomatic therapies. And some of them have good medications in their pipelines that are trying to manage symptoms in a, in a better way. And I think the more that we slow down the disease, uh, if we're able to do that, the more we'll have to think about how to manage people's symptoms. And so we can't forget about that. Mm -hmm. Dr. Turner. Yeah, we talk mostly about anti-amyloid antibodies because that's sort of the, um, been the leading approach and the one that may be closest to possible clinical application and FDA approval. 
although it may take a few more years uh, before we get there. Um, right behind that, there are anti-tau strategies, including anti-tau monoclonal antibodies, although I haven't seen much encouraging data so far yet on this approach. And then there are, you know, there are more than 100 phase two clinical trials, different small molecules with different strategies. Uh, some of them may be disease modifying, some may be symptomatic. And then as Dr. Dickerson uh, just described, there are these shorter term, smaller uh, studies uh, targeting a specific abnormal behavior. And these are very valuable as well because this is a, also a huge problem and another huge unmet need. So there's a, a lot of, uh, in, of work in the pipeline, but still a lot of work to do. And just uh, like from each of you, just some closing remarks to um, the clinicians that are first seeing patients with possible or probable um, Alzheimer's disease or other dementias. Um, what would be your, your key message to them, Dr. Turner? Uh, I would encourage uh, older individuals with memory problems to seek a medical evaluation, diagnosis, and treatment. Sometimes uh, easily treatable causes are uncovered, such as vitamin B12 deficiency, thyroid disorder, sleep apnea, depression, or sometimes people are taking a medication with known to cause memory problems. And try to make a diagnosis as accurate as possible with or without any biomarker support. Not all dementias are Alzheimer's disease, but it could be Lewy body dementia, frontotemporal dementia, vascular dementia, other or mixed dementias, other causes. Take advantage of the drugs that are already approved and available. I know there's a, a lot of um, a negativity around these drugs because of perceived lack of effectiveness and a lot of non-compliance, but at least uh, try to see if patients can tolerate uh, a cholinesterase inhibitor, for example, and then amend that once they get to the moderate stage. So take advantage of the drugs that are already approved treat all the comorbidities, sleep disorders, anxiety, depression, et cetera. Encourage individuals to find out about research opportunities. Uh, my estimate is that probably less than 1% of eligible patients actually participate in any research. And I think a lot of this is because they just don't know that it's a, that's possible to uh, join a research study. Uh, embrace uh, all the lifestyle recommendations, uh, physical exercise, Mediterranean diet, you know, avoiding all the risk factors or cognitive decline. And there's even a web study called the aptwebstudy.org, which is available to everyone over 50 uh, to learn about uh, brain, maintaining brain health and participating in brain games, which can be repeated to track performance over time. So anyone from the comfort of their home can participate in research on this uh, web study. So those would just be my uh, general recommendations. Awesome, Dr. Dickerson. I think Dr. Turner hit all the high points. I think that um, it's really valuable for um, primary care clinicians in particular to take advantage of the fact that they know the patient's uh, background and values and um, align with them really to try to figure out um, how do they want to go through the process of getting evaluated. We don't want to ever just dismiss someone's concern of memory problems as just you're getting older or you may be under a lot of stress. And so I agree with Dr. Turner that we have to take those concerns seriously and we have to find ways to help the primary care clinicians open their door to an informant, you know, typically a spouse or an adult child who often has observations that are so critical to the history of the present illness, but often are difficult to get into um, the primary care clinician's office because of, in some cases, appropriate HIPAA procedures. But it takes a little bit of a variation in, in practice 
to try to get that kind of information that, compared to what most primary care clinicians do. Um, and I do agree that I think even if the whole process uh, turns up nothing to be particularly concerned about, it can serve as a baseline and a motivator to uh, be proactive about trying to engage in the variety of brain healthy behaviors that, that we often think of as also healthy from a cardiovascular standpoint as well. Excellent. Um, this has been a, a really great discussion. I think both of these podcasts give a, a, a wonderful picture of where we are, both in research, biomarkers, therapeutics, hopefully coming down the road very soon. Um, so thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Remember to visit journalclubpodcast.com forward slash 82 to receive your credit and evaluate this program. For our other neurology podcasts, please visit journalclubpodcast.com forward slash neurology. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you.